This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez. And we welcome you to the Black Hill Bed Radio. I'm Eric Lopez. No Jeff this week. He's uh, attending some family matters. Hope everybody uh, best wishes to the family over there. So we got uh, some uh, uh, some special guests on this program. First, right now with me, ladies and gentlemen, back again. It's becoming a regular, which we like. Andrew Glukoff joining me here on the Banneret. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's it's rare. You know, no Jeff. It's quieter. <laughs> Why well, it is definitely quieter, a little low key. Uh, coming up later in the program, I'm going to interview and uh, be joined by Becky Kramer, the UCF rowing head coach. They're going to be in the American Conference Championships this week in Tennessee, and of course, after that, the NCAA Championships are in your back of the near your area there, uh, Andrew, and your home there in Sarasota. Yeah, I live about 10 minutes away from the rowing facility near uh, State Route or Interstate 75 and the county border between Sarasota and Manatee. So it's not a long drive for me at all. That's pretty good. All right, so what you're saying is you're, you're willing to cover the championships. I, we'll make a note of that. We'll pass it along to Jeffrey. Uh, I always that. say, you 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 get me in, I'll take care of the rest. <laughs> it's kind of unique how to get into a rowing competition. But nonetheless, uh, later in the program, we'll also be joined by our Black and Gold Banner at very own Bryson Turner, making his debut on the podcast. We're going to talk about UCF baseball's issues uh, going on as they lost three out of four against Wichita State. All of that, plus, of course, softball in the American Conference Championship, all coming up on this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret. Make sure you check us out at Black and Gold Banneret on our website. Of course, our YouTube page. Subscribe to our YouTube page at Black and Gold Banneret. We have all the post-game interviews with softball, with Coach Sidney Bobalone, as well as Greg Lovelady and the players. We'll be doing that throughout the postseason as well. So make sure you subscribe to the YouTube page. Make sure you subscribe, obviously follow us at UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter. And, of course, blackandgobanneret.com for all the latest at UCF. All right, let's get into it. We'll begin with softball. The American Conference Championships in Tulsa gets underway Thursday, and UCF will be the first game. They're the three-seed they will take on East Carolina. UCF coming off winning three out of four against South Florida, denying the Bulls out of winning the regular season title. But, Andrew, because of that 0-0 tie, that UCF had with Wichita State back on April 18th when clock literally ran out on the drop dead time. Because of that tie, South Florida is still ahead of UCF with a 16 and 7 conference record, number two seed. UCF is the three seed. Wichita State is the regular season champion. They're the one seed. They will get a bye into the semifinal. You got Houston as a five seed. They're playing Tulsa. East Carolina will play UCF. And then Memphis will play South Florida. UCF swept East Carolina earlier this year in Greenville, but that's misleading. One of the games went 10 innings. So it's a single elimination, a game elimination tournament in Tulsa. And Andrew, we know Tulsa has not been UCF's athletics best friend. No, I think they made some voodoo deal (laughs) with someone because UCF historically has not had really any consistent success against Tulsa, especially at Tulsa, where I'd like to point out the football team has yet to win a game. 
<laughs> no, they, that is correct. Uh, very true. Uh, so we'll see what happens uh, there. Now, let, I'm going to defer now here. You, I want you to pepper me with questions. You're more of a novelty softball fan, but you're UCF fan. Obviously, I'm, I'm kind of – this is a busy week for me because I'm covering UCF softball and the entire landscape on my softball podcast. So what questions do you have about UCF softball here as they head into the American Conference Championship? Well, I think the big question everyone's wondering is where is, is what's the path to the postseason? You know, we have the conference tournament. It's a single elimination. You win it all. You go three and out. Let's assume UCF doesn't go three and out uh, at 32nd in the RPI. And I know you love the RPI until they replace yeah. it. That's what we got. Right. Uh, do you think they have enough of a resume to get an at large bid into the tournament as it stands today? Yes, I do, uh, for a few reasons. Number one, I mean, you mentioned the RPI. That's a good number, 32. Number two, you look at their resume, they got a win against Arizona, who's top 10. Two wins against Florida. They swept the home and home against Florida. Florida is, what, number three in the country, number four. That's a pretty good, strong uh, resume to start off with. They also have a win against at South Carolina, who's going to likely be in the NCAA tournament. Three out of four against South Florida. And they finished really basically in a dead heat for second place, third place in the fifth strongest conference. I think UCF's a lock to be in the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2016. I think the question is the seeding they get and where they will play in the NCAA tournament. I think that's the question, Andrew, that we're looking forward to finding out Sunday night uh, uh, when the selection show uh, begins. Yeah, and and the thing is, you know, we've seen a, a favoritism between you know power conference teams versus non-power conference teams and and while the american in non-football is kind of like a tweener in basketball they're kind of viewed as somewhat of a power conference team but but kind of in the middle uh do you think that bias could play a role against the knights i don't think so not in softball uh they got a good tradition and reputation in softball uh and again i think the bigger thing that the committee's concerned with is the re- regional, you know, busing teams. There's they, there's a thing where if a team is within 400 mile radius, they can bus to to play that in that regional. So to me, with Florida and Florida State in the mix to host and likely to host, I think UCF is going to be placed in one of those two regions, either in Gainesville or in Tallahassee for the regionals. And you could argue that that's kind of the biasness, if you will, because I've complained about that, that it's always the same regional. This year, I'm going to give the committee a pass because of the, everything with the protocols and COVID. I understand, you know, if they, if they try to keep it safe, I, I have no issues with that. I wish there would be more of a national tournament seating where you didn't just automatically bus a team to a certain locations. You could just travel them to wherever they're seated and, you know, have the student athletes having different experiences. You know, the one, you know, but this year, that's out of. I think I don't think that'll happen. I think UCF will be in Gainesville or Tallahassee, either as a two seed in Gainesville or maybe as a two or a three seed in Tallahassee. But I think they're in the tournament. I don't believe the only team that might run into some problems. I think is South Florida. I think they may need a win or two here in the conference tournament to get that third team secure. I think Wichita State and UCF are locks for the tournament, regardless of what happens this week. Yeah, because uh, uh, USF being 56 in the RPI. Now, between Florida and Florida State, because you make a very valid point because of the busing, because COVID has kind of changed the philosophy a little bit. And we're seeing, I guess, a little bit more of what we commonly see in baseball. 
where they always seem to end up in the same regional over and over again. Which one of the two would you rather be against? That's a great question. So the UCF beat Florida twice during the regular season. So if you're a half full you know, tank uh, optimistic say, hey, they've beaten them twice. They'll have confidence going to Gainesville. They match up well with Florida. They've hit all of Florida pitching. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, do you really, can you, you know, are you know, asking them to beat Florida potentially four times in one year, which is what they would have to do to advance to a region, uh, past a regional, might be too much to ask. So some would say they should be better off at Florida State. They haven't played Florida State this year. They might match up better with Florida State that doesn't have the firepower offensively that a Florida does. But I don't know, Andrew. I mean, at the end of the day, both teams are good. If you play well, you got a chance to win. If you don't, you don't. Uh, you know, which one they would prefer? I mean, I would say Florida State just because you haven't seen Florida State, you know, whereas Florida seen you twice, and now they get a chance to play you again in their backyard. Fair enough. Um, me personally, I would actually, I would love for Florida State only for the fact yeah. it's it's really the devil that doesn't know you. Right, right. And and and, and Florida's just just really good. They just UCF just had the number, but I mean you can only tap that well so many times. I agree. No, I agree. I agree. I think that's legit. I think that's a very well uh, description of the preference there. I, I tend to agree. I think if you polled the majority, I would say they would prefer to be in Tallahassee. Even though Andrew, that would mean more than likely that they would have to open with an SEC team because they like to bust SEC teams to Tallahassee. So it would they, you might probably get a, a tougher opening round game. But I do agree with you. I think it's a more winnable regional in Tallahassee than Gainesville. I think they can win each regional, but I think you're right. It's a FSU doesn't isn't familiar with UCF uh, this because they haven't played this year. Whereas Florida is very familiar. They've seen all the UCF pitchers. I do think you're right. I think that would actually work to Florida's advantage. And you mentioned South Carolina as a team that possibly could squeeze in the tournament. Uh, I would love for South Carolina to get. Uh, matched up against UCF because they've had a rough going this year. Uh, they're actually a 500 team, which, you know, right. they in a normal year would be a, a not unheard of. But, I mean, obviously this year things are kind of a little wonky. Now, they did play UCF earlier this year, one, two out of three, but that was at South Carolina. Some umpiring decisions were rather interesting over there. So it would be, I think, a different story if they played in a neutral field like Tallahassee. Of course, that is no South Carolina and UCF played in the 2015 regional in Tallahassee, so it would be nothing new there. South Carolina gets sent to Tallahassee a lot. So that is a possible scenario. I think if UCF goes to Tallahassee, I think the likely opponents are either South Carolina, Mississippi State, or Georgia, if I had to kind of handicap it that way. Whereas if they go to Gainesville, they might be playing Troy, or they fly a team like Iowa State or Minnesota, somebody like that, to Gainesville. But again, uh, you're going to face good teams regardless. So we will know about all that 9 o'clock Eastern on the deuce. And you know, But the big thing is they're going to be in the tournament. They're going to be in for the first time since 2016. I think now the only question is, is are they a two-seed or a three-seed, which is not that big of a deal in the big picture. But more importantly, are they in Gainesville? Gainesville or Tallahassee, I think there's a 95% chance they'll be in one of those two regionals and a 5% chance they get shipped out of the state. All right, let's let's dial back a little bit. Let's talk conference tournament. Mm -hmm. So the bracket is set. We've got Tulsa and Houston, UCF, ECU, and USF Memphis. Obviously, Wichita State gets the bye because there's only seven teams in the conference. Uh, based on the way it played out and, and the fact that USF – gets the benefit 
of of the seating based on that tie that, as you mentioned, when the clock literally ran out. Uh, do you feel that that difference is at all material considering UCF's matched up against East Carolina as opposed to Memphis? I do think there's a difference because I think Memphis is clearly the worst team in the league. I think there is a difference. East Carolina is scrappy. As I mentioned, they pushed UCF in the first game of that series in Greenville at 10 innings. Uh, they've been playing pretty decently down the stretch. Now, I still think UCF is the favorite. They can win. But I do think East Carolina is a tougher opponent than Memphis. So I think that is an advantage. But it also puts more pressure on a South Florida to win that game. Because if South Florida were to get upset by Memphis, that probably uh, puts them out permanently out of the NCAA tournament. That's a tough loss to overcome. So it's going to be interesting to see. I, I think both teams will be favored. The interesting storyline there, obviously, is – Georgina Corey, the now three-time conference pitcher of the year. She was named pitcher of the year this year. She pitched in two of the games against UCF, won the Friday night game against UCF against Aaliyah White, 2-0, lost the first game of the doubleheader on Saturday. They didn't pitch her on Sunday because they knew they had the 2C wrapped up. And I think in head coach Ken Erickson's mind, he knew that in the back of his mind, if he saw UCF again, he, you know, he was going to throw court. So he didn't want to show her again against UCF. So I think there's some gamesmanship there. I'll be interesting to see how UCF kind of sets up their rotation. If they go with Mancha for the first game against ECU or they go with Aaliyah or do they split them? And then, I, you know, and then, you know, moving forward on that. Keep this in mind too, Andrew. UCF has not won a American Conference tournament game since 2016 in Tulsa when they beat UConn to advance to the semi. So this scene, this group has not tasted a postseason win, believe it or not. But could you see UCF throwing Aaliyah White in all tournament games? I don't know about all tournament games, but I think she will uh, be available. I'll put it that way. Uh, For example, let's say they decide to start Mancha against – ECU. I could see Aaliyah getting the start in the semis against USF if that's the matchup because she really matched up well against USF. I could also see her coming in relief. Uh, I don't know if she would pitch every game. I think they would split her with Mancha. That's my, but that's just my guess. Yeah, Mancha going you know, seven innings against USF on the eighth, uh, giving up uh, three runs, had a, a, a third of an inning in relief the following day, didn't give up anything. So, I mean, there, there's a fresh arm there. And I could see that she goes up in the first round, especially against a weaker team like East Carolina. However, as you say, don't sleep on the Pirates. Pirates have won five straight going into this. Uh, As far as win streaks, they're the hottest team in the conference. Does that scare you at all? Yes. Yes, it does, because they've got some confidence. They, They won a conference tournament game two years ago. And it's interesting, kind of full circle. They beat UCF in Greenville in the 2017 American Conference Tournament. This that was the this group's first year uh, playing in a conference tournament. And as I mentioned, UCF has not won a conference tournament game since 2016. So does that play in their head? I don't know, but I think it's important for UCF to get off to a good start and kind of you know not you know kind of uh, put pressure on themselves in this scenario. This is still a very young group, despite having 11 seniors. There's a lot of players that haven't tasted postseason success. So, yeah, I think East Carolina is definitely a dangerous team uh, that se- seems to always rise to the occasion come conference tournament time. So that's definitely a concern. They've got a good pitcher in Woodall that's been pitching pretty well. So I think it'll be a scrappy game, uh, but we'll know early. UCF usually likes to start fast. If they can get off to a fast start and jump from a, and have a lead, uh, they're going to be tough to beat. 
East Carolina ranked 148 in the RPI. Obviously not a strong program, but definitely in much better shape than Memphis is. So if UCF loses this first round, which is last few years is, is possible, yep. you still think it's not a bad enough loss to knock them out? No, no, no. I think they're in. The only thing that could happen is it may drop them from a two seed to a three seed. That's it. All right, let's put a bow on that one. Well, there you go. American Conference softball talk right there, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, uh, congrats, Aaliyah White, Jada Cody, Denali Schopacher, all first team all-conference, as well as Jasmine Esparza, second team, Kira Klarkowski, Carissa Ornelas, as, uh, making second team as well, uh, which I thought Kira should have been first team. Gianna Mancha, also second team, as well as Shannon Doherty. So uh, UCF honored on the awards. Georgina Cork, South Florida, the three-time now conference pitcher of the year. And uh, Sidney McKinney, the pitcher, the hit offensive player of the year in the American. Uh, those were the awards that came out for the American. All right. So let's talk. Uh, let's segue here real quick, Andrew. Some news out of football because football in May. And look, this is something we got to get used to. And I think fans still are not getting used to this. But I think it's this is the new norm now in college athletics when it comes to football and basketball. We'll even tie them in because there's some news there, too. And that is transfers and movement. Uh, Let's start with football, a familiar name, Jordan Johnson. But not that Jordan Johnson. Correct. Yes, correct. Uh, We have one, though, now on UCF. That's the Notre Dame wide receiver version, Jordan Johnson, I believe. Uh, Transferring from Notre Dame to UCF, what can you tell us about him? Uh, This guy is pretty good, Uh, you know. In on rivals, he's viewed as a five star. In two four seven, he's viewed as a four star. Uh, this is one of the highest rated prospects to ever uh, commit to the Knights, and uh, this is big. Uh, he's going to have four years of eligibility, whether he uses them or not, or not. Who knows? But he's got all four. Six two one ninety five pounder. Uh, he's got size, and there's a need at wide receiver. You know, UCF losing their top three wide receivers, uh, Marlon Williams, uh, uh, Trey Nixon, Jacob Harris. Uh, you still have Jalen Robinson and Ryan O'Keefe. And then you have, you know, a transfer in Brandon Johnson from, from Tennessee, but this is a, a massive, massive opportunity for, for a, a guy to really just take it by, you know, take a, a spot by force. Uh, he came in, he was, depending on who you ask, the number five nationally ranked wide receiver. And while he didn't get to do much at Notre Dame, there was a lot of opportunity for him at UCF. You know, bottom line, this was a terrific pickup. And this, this was huge. Where do you, I mean, it's so hard because they haven't played right, but I, I think you bring up a great point. Some people are like, well, he didn't do anything at Notre Dame, but that doesn't matter, right? And these type of things, especially it was just there his first year. You know, there's you know, a lot of veterans behind him, a different scheme. Um, where do you see him fitting in here as far as this young, I mean, this is kind of probably one of the top stories, right? When we get to fall camp is this wide receiving core, which is so young. It's not only young, but you're you're getting also some some talented transfers. Uh, aside from from you know the two Johnsons, you have Nate Craig Myers from Colorado State coming in. So you have holdovers in O'Keefe, Amari Johnson, Jalen Robinson, and then you have these new guys coming in that are going to need to take advantage of the time between now and and the fall to really to really learn things. 
but I this is exciting. Uh, UCF has has not had that much success, uh, not just landing transfers because UCF's had done pretty well on that before, but actually getting guys on the field. I mean, I remember the days of Terry Mayo. I mean, let's go in the way back time machine where we all thought this was the the big one, and he never actually saw the field. Uh, so, I mean, it's great that we're getting guys in. The key is get them to the field. Yeah, I, I agree. It's going to be interesting. What do you make of the moves that Gus has made as far as guys that are what, that, that have either committed to transfer to come here to play for him or even guys that have been rumored? Uh, it seems like every time there's a guy that enters the transfer portal, one of the places that gets brought up is Gus and UCF. Well... I mean, you look at what he did at Auburn, and, and he did a lot with a lot of restrictions. Uh, Auburn has a lot of old money that forced him to do things a certain way, and, and that hurt his ability to be as creative. And I've talked to people, and, and they've told me the same thing. When he's allowed to, to do his own thing, which UCFs allow him to do, he's put some magic together. And, and I think players recognize that. And you, you take it, you take a guy with some cachet like Gus Malzahn, who, by the way, we at the Banneret have been all over as the guy that UCF was looking to hire from day one. You look at our two main articles about that's right, who the big pick of the head coach is going to be because I know you and I worked on this. The cover guy was always Gus Malzahn. I, I rest my case. We've always been on, on the Gus bus, just seeing the, the possibility as well as the fact that he was available without any strings attached, no bios, no nothing. But look at the results. Uh, this is what the eighth player to transfer to UCF as a result of him coming uh, a number uh, of players, including a couple of Auburn players, uh, you know, skill players off you know, defensive ends, We've got a, a new kicker coming this way, which you know UCF desperately needs. I, it's very exciting. This is a very exciting time. I agree, and I like the fact you're patting us in the back for uh, we both push for Gus uh, there deal there. Uh, one more thing, we still don't know ex- officially when the football schedule, as far as some of the the Boise State date is concerned. Uh, all I all the belief is, and I tend to believe this, this will be a Thursday night game on ESPN. Uh, there was announced this week on SEC Network on Thursday night that Tennessee and their home opener will be on SEC Network on Thursday night. So you could have a scenario, Andrew, where Gus and UCF against Boise State on ESPN going on at the same time as that that other head coach we used to have who's now in Knoxville. It's the SEC Network. Uh, if you're going to compare on viewership, uh, that's not one you really want to compare because the SEC network is not going to draw more eyes than ESPN. I'm sorry. No, but I just thought it was amusing that they moved now. You know, got, they're hosting Bowling Green, a big powerhouse, 8 o'clock Eastern there. Hey, that you know, respect the Mac. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think UCF? Do we think? Do you think UCF fans will flip over at times to, that are not at the game? It really depends on really depends on how the game goes. Uh, yeah. If if UCF just you know either like just puts the hammer down or or gets hammered, uh, I could see people you know switching over. But if it's if it's a good game, 
Uh, no, I, I expect UCF fans to have a little more faith in their team and will stick around. Yeah, I agree. I don't I don't get a sense UCF fans care what he's doing at Tennessee as much. Well, Do you? I, I, I think they, they more want to see him flounder. <laughs> uh, that that that's at least what I've seen online. I'll, I'll be honest. I I want him to just do. Uh, he's got his work cut out for him. Tennessee's going to be navigating some rough waters for a while. It's more of a case of you wanted to play at the big boys. Well, now now you are, and good luck to you, guy. Good luck, champ. Exactly. All right. Uh, let's turn over to basketball. Some news out of basketball. John Rostein reporting that Brandon Mayhan will transfer out of UCF. He has an extra year to play with. Look, I mean, this is part of college athletics now. I mean, you're going to see movement back and forth, especially with guys, uh, with athletes that have a year extra. This is going to happen because everybody's got this mathematical juggling act they got to do with their rosters and not everybody's going to fit. So your reaction, a lot of moving pieces with UCF basketball right now. Uh, This is a not – if you could see me, you would see my not surprise face. Brandon Mahan started on fire, just absolutely scorching hot and had cooled off so badly. Uh, you wondered if there were still a pulse. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, Mahan was a very frustrating player because he had all the talent, but really didn't have, he wasn't really meant to be the number one guy. He's, he's really a two uh, better third option. And that's something that he's not going to get at UCF. So it may be better for him to look at a different school. Now there are three players that have already, declared that they're transferring uh, Mahan Moses bowl, which was a, a project that never worked. And then Colin Smith who opted out for a, some undisclosed medical reason. They, they said it wasn't COVID, but there was some other reason that he, he not only did he opt out, but he left the program last year. Now he's declared that he's going to transfer somewhere else. Uh, you have two players in CJ Walker and Isaiah Adams who were were just high flyers that have said they're declaring for the NBA with LG, with with the ability to return. Uh, this this is not new. Uh, Taco Falls done it. Uh, Darren Green's done it, and and this is so they can meet with teams, find out what they need to work on, and then come back. Is neither of those guys are ready for the NBA? They're not draftable at this point. So I expect those guys to come back. You have Darius Johnson, four star player coming in and, and time Freeman, uh, who was uh, a Juco, uh, you got some talent coming in, but I mean, that's the, the only problem is you got, it's a, this is a young team and, and losing Mayhem and Smith on the only real negative on that is, is you're losing that veteran presence. So you're going to have a, a young team again, which is raw, a lot of energy, but tends to be a little uncontrolled. Something we saw with CJ Walker, a lot, a lot of energy uncontrolled, it could be a long year again if the team doesn't gel quickly. But from a, a, a youth standpoint, you have to be at least excited with who's coming in. But it's going to be youth, right? I mean, but that's you got to get upside talent there. And uh, it's going to be interesting. A lot of moving pieces with basketball. And, you know, but that's going to be the norm now. I think we just got to get used to it, don't we, Andrew? At some point, we just got to, you know, I feel like everybody. We got to stop with the reaction. Like, oh no, what are we going? I mean, this is just part of college athletics now moving forward. Yes. And it's only going to become more when they change the transfer rules, even again, to, to allow, you know, a one freebie transfer, which I'll be honest, I'm fine with, you know, if coaches can leave uh, players should be allowed to leave, you know, scholarships should be on a year to year basis. 
And, you know, if you don't want to resign on your scholarship, you should be allowed to pack up and leave. I, I, I think this is the new world we live in and, you know, just buckle up for the ride. Our friend Brian Murphy had a great line of describing it. He's like, you just got to treat athletes are now like independent contractors in a lot of cases. Uh, and look, we all have been independent contractors when it comes to getting gigs and things like that. I mean, they want to play basketball and they're going to move if they don't feel like they're in a good spot or whatever. Uh, they're going to move on. And that's just part of college athletics. Um, by the way, this has been a part of Olympic sports now forever. So, like, I've laughed. Like, baseball and softball have been used to this, whereas basketball and football have not. So, this is kind of not that new in college athletics. It just now it's hitting it's up mainstream. the – It's hit the mainstream. That's a great line. Great point uh, on that. All right, we'll leave it th- as that for basketball. we got plenty of time to talk basketball down the road. Uh, Drew, tell the audience where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at StatBoyDrew as well as on the, the Banneret website. All right, Drew, thanks for pinch hitting there. We'll be looking for you on social media and then some of your work. I know you got some great projects ahead for Banneret here, especially as we get into the summertime. We won't spoil it right now. We'll get you back on to uh, bring, bring, bring that up. But uh, nah, I'm very she- excited about this project I'm working on, and, and I'm pretty sure you are too. Oh, yeah. You and I live for the summertime content. Uh, oh man, we, we dig deep you, in the weaves. Oh, this is where you start scraping the barrel, coming up with some creative stuff, and and you know I've done a lot of legwork to pick up some stuff for the summer project. Fans, you will not be disappointed. No, no, they will not. I agree with that uh, on that. All right, we'll take a break. We come back. Uh, softball's not the only UCF sport to be playing in a conference championship this week. Rowiness. We'll be joined by Becky Kramer to talk about it. Then later, Bryson Turner will join me to talk about baseball, UCF baseball's issues. That and much more. You're listening to the Black and Gold Banneret. And welcome back here to the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Well, let's get into some tennis. NCAA tournament tennis took place this weekend in Lake Nona. We're a historic weekend with both UCF men's and women's tennis hosting for the first time in program history, both number nine national seeds, both with mixed results. Men's tennis, let's start with them. They got their first ever NCAA tournament win on Saturday where they knocked off Monmouth 4-0, first win in program history. However, on Sunday, they took on 16th-ranked Mississippi State in the second round. And we discussed this on the podcast last week. I told you this was a rough draw for UCF men's tennis and John Roddick, especially getting the Miami-Mississippi State winner. Mississippi State was a team that was in the mix to host. Uh, it's been ranked in the top 25 all year. That's the team they end up playing. Mississippi State beat Miami to get to this point. And unfortunately for UCF, their season comes to an end. Losing 4-2 to uh, in the match, ending their season. Mississippi State, you know, UCF it really did a nice job in singles play. UCF was able to win the doubles point to take a 1-0 lead. But singles-wise, really, uh, they came out playing. Florian Brosca, number 48-ranked player for Mississippi State, beat Allen Rubio over there in court uh, and really took it to the Knights from a single standpoint. Uh, the Knights were only able to really muster one win in singles. That was by Kento Yamada, who beat number uh, Alberto Colas, who's ranked 121, beat him in straight sets. But in every other singles match, Mississippi State won 
which did not factor in Gabriel DeCamps. His match did not count because the match was already over. So the Knights, unfortunately, were not able to send have DeCamps be involved. His match against Oradani was in the third set. DeCamps had lost the first set, came back to win the second set in a tiebreak. They were two all in the third. But at that point, Mississippi State had clinched the match 4-2 to win it and knock off UCF. First loss for UCF at home this year. Tough way to lose. But again, tough draw for men's tennis uh, This uh, in there. We had a bad feeling about that, and unfortunately it came to fruition. Still, a tremendous season for men's tennis. 22-4 and four on the year. They still have a chance to win championships and compete for it in singles and doubles. Gabe DeCamps will now focus on singles, while the doubles tandem of Trey Hildebrand and Pavel uh, will focus now on doubles uh, for the championship. Much better news for the women's side as they advance to the Sweet 16 for the second consecutive time in program history. They were there in 2019 before losing to Pepperdine. They advanced this time around at home. They opened with a win over Charleston Southern in the opening round of the tournament and then beat Miami 4-1. to one. They rallied to win all six uh, uh, first sets that they needed in the first set and, of course, would punch their straight second straight ticket to the Sweet 16. Uh, they will now be playing at home in the Sweet 16, trying to become the first UCF team ever in tennis to get to the quarterfinals if they were able uh, to make it through there. We'll see what happens there. The last, keep this in mind, the last time that UC, a UCF team has played in the Elite Eight was UCF women's soccer in 2011. Amanda Cromwell and Alini Reyes, UCF Athletic Hall of Famer, all got there by beating North Carolina in penalty kicks in the Sweet 16 to advance to the Elite Eight before they lost to Wake Forest. UCF Women's Tennis will try to join that group Sunday night, 7 o'clock. They, again, a tough draw. They will face number 18-ranked Duke in the Sweet 16 with the winner to advance to the Elite Eight uh, on that one. So we wish Brian Koneko and company there the very best of luck in tennis uh, over there and hope for the best from their standpoint and uh, advance to that, make it to the Elite Eight. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, UCF Women's Golf was in the regionals, over, moving over to them. Their season came to an end in the Louisville Regional as they wrapped up final play on Wednesday. The Knights shot a five over in the final round. It was 17 over over the three-round total. They finished tied for eighth place in the Louisville Regional. Top four teams advanced to the championships. Uh, they did finish ahead of teams like Tennessee, Louisville, and North Florida. But the top six teams and the low three individuals each advance to the national championship. So it's top six. They just missed it by two spots. UCF missed it just by two strokes. Tough break there for Coach Marin and company. Still a great year. Uh, to run up, Pete Owen led them with a three-over par. Ana Laura Collado at three-over par. Alyssa Lamoureux, who finished at 12-over par, uh, improved each round. She will now focus to playing for the U.S. Open in a few weeks as she qualified for that first active UCF player to do that in a long uh, deal there. So a great year for UCF women's golf. Ends up just short of the championships, but it's still another great run for Emily Marin and company in the regionals. All right. And of course, UCF rowing will be competing in the American Conference Championships this weekend in Tennessee. 
I had a chance to speak with UCF rowing head coach Becky Kramer earlier on Wednesday to talk about preparations for the conference championship for them. They've won five previous conference championships in a row, looking for a six-peak, but they got a big target in their back. Among the teams that'll be a big threat to them includes SMU out of the American. But of course, for Becky Kramer, it is this time of year which she's known for. One of the most successful head coaches in UCF athletics history. Becky Kramer's been a part of this program as an assistant and as a head coach now for over 16 years. Here now is UCF rowing head coach Becky Kramer on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. All right, joining us now, she's the head coach, she's been the head coach at UCF since 2008. Speak of Becky Kramer joining us here on the Black and Gold Banneret. How are you doing, coach? Good, good. No, it's great to be here. How are you doing? Good, good. What's it been like this year? It's been such a unique year across, obviously, everywhere in all sports with obviously the protocols and the pandemic going on and things like that. What's it been like for you and your program in rowing? Um, I know that, you know, every every team, every sport's had their, their challenges. Um, we, we've had our challenges. The team uh, has done a great job of pushing through and kind of persevering despite, um, but you know, last year, I, I believe it was, um, I think May, or I'm sorry, March 12th was the last day that we, or maybe it was 13th, that we were in boats together. Um, and as we came back in the fall and, you know, it was unknown what things were going to look like. We have um, a large number of international athletes on our team. Um, and so a number of them chose to stay home in their home countries in the fall and train. And so we actually had a very young group on campus um, because a lot of our leadership was um, staying home. And with just the nature of social distancing, I mean, it, it makes it impossible to be in boats. And so we did not get into our, our bigger boats, our basically our conference boats, the fours and eights until the end of January. And so to go that long without actually kind of specifically doing what our sport is uh, definitely has, has been a bit challenging. We were able to focus on a lot of other aspects of our sport. Um, it was very, very individualized. And so we made a lot of improvements that way. But um, for example, our coxswains, didn't get an opportunity to steer from March until nearly February. Um, and they've, they've been doing a great job since, but it definitely was definitely changed our timeline of training a bit. How much, how much of an adjustment was it for you and your staff? How much adjusting do you have to do and navigate here to kind of get your team ready once you did get together and just start the season? Um, in terms of uh, once we, we're able to get into to the bigger boats, the Cox boats, the eights and fours. Um, we not having a fall season, that's when we work a lot on the technical foundation. Um, and so we started in the middle of February so when we should have started gearing up. We had a scrimmage only a few weeks later uh, with Tennessee and we sort of hit the ground running with the racing season. So we're both trying to establish technical foundations get everybody matched up together, but then also prepare for racing. And so there were days when we had to cut back on, on training and that was a little bit challenging, but then there's days where we just have to kind of overlook some of the technical things that, because we just need to get them prepared. So the, um, that being said, the, the team is deeper than it's ever been. And so some of the adjustments we've made as coaches is that we're used to being in our lineups and set lineups longer, but so many people have been working hard and figuring things out and learning on the fly that the results and 
selection have been inconsistent, but that's because everybody's pushing hard and we're deeper and faster through the team than we have in the past. And so our adjustment is we've just had to constantly be checking and seeing where people are. And we've had athletes be in different boats um, way more often than in years past. Where do you feel you're you're at right now as you get sick? Because I know in the past when we've spoken, you've talked about, you know, there's the season, but you want to make sure you're peaking and at your best right now. Here as you get into the conference championship, that's when you've obviously raised your the level of your and then there's so so where do you feel you're at right now? Um honestly, with kind of how this year has unfolded, we are definitely finding more speed than, than we have. Um, it's obviously there's things that we would have liked to have gone differently as the season has unfolded, but it's all really coming together. And we are um, in practice are putting down our fastest pieces that we have this year and even challenging some of the fastest times we've had in years past. And so um, it was definitely a lot of learning through the regular season, um, but it set us up and it's given us the foundation to really put the pieces together at just the right time, which is we're pretty excited as coaches right now. Having the, the experience from the past, winning the conference championships, does that help you this week considering there was no championships last year? Um, it's, it's interesting because having had, you know, so many championships under our belt, um, with having a bit of a younger team, uh, we do have a large group of, seniors and a large group of super seniors that came back, but it's, it's still the percentage of the team is very young. We don't have a ton of athletes who've ever raced at a championship. Um, and even in 2019, um, our championship was kind of crazy and it had to be moved up suddenly by two days. And a lot of, it wasn't run sort of in a typical fashion. And so the bulk of our team has not been to sort of a normal championship and so we've sort of in our minds reset ourselves and not necessarily as defending five but going out because it's a new team it's we're far enough removed that we're looking at chasing our this team's first if that makes sense no it does right because that takes it's not really it, it kind of takes some of the pressure off you're just trying to win a championship you're not thinking about the past for the players so it probably helps them from a mental standpoint right exactly exactly and, and like when we um did a photo shoot earlier, you know, we, it's not about the, I mean, yes, we're honoring the athletes that have come before us, but it's, it's not their champion. This is our championship and the rings and the trophies are from past teams, but let's win. Like this team needs to win a championship. And so it is definitely sort of reawakened that hunger um, and sort of resets it. And so having a year with none, as you said, it, it takes the pressure off because we're looking to chase our first. Yeah, man, it says motivated to try to win a championship. It's really, yeah, it's very smart on that. Let me ask you about a couple of your athletes. Julie Polson, one of the mm -hmm. most decorated rowers of all time. It's probably her and Christina Sarf, who was here, part of that first 07 NCAA tournament team and probably should be considered for be the first rower to be in the UCF yeah. Athletic Hall of Fame. What makes Julie so uh, f important and so f and great at what she does? Um, Julie is, she, um, I mean, has, as we recruited her, she was racing at the highest level and she has been to numerous world championships, but as she came here, she continued to grow as an athlete and a person. And she, um, essentially was before she came, she had predominantly raced the single. And so coming into UCF, uh, racing the big boats, the eights was a bit new. And so she 
had a lot to learn and grow um, just from sort of the team environment, but she also had a lot to, to teach us and, um, and just the speed. And so she, it's been really exciting and awesome to, to watch her grow. Um, but she is just, uh, she's a team player and she just wants to race and go fast and be competitive and challenges everyone on the team and, you know, sees everyone as her peers, which, um, you know, allows us to go out and hold everybody accountable to that same standard. Uh, but she is, as you had said, one of our most decorated and is excited because as she graduates from here, she's um, moving on and ultimately going to look to make the Olympics. I'm not going to put you on the spot and, and, you know, compare her to Christina, but like just looking up the meet, you know, studying and you've been at the program for a long time. How do you compare the two of them who have made a big impact? Of course, Christina's now still uh, involved. She's an assistant coach at Oklahoma, as like I said, probably should be the first rower mm -hmm. to get inducted into UCF Athletics Hall of Fame. I think yep. that's a, that should happen with the success of the program. She was a big part of that in the beginning. But how do you I compare, agree? Yeah. You agree? Yeah. I, how do you compare those two uh, since you know both of them? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I do, um, I think they have very, very different backgrounds and that Christina had been sort of an out of sport initially. Uh, she was a swimmer who found rowing, whereas Julie has been rowing since she was 10, but ultimately kind of at their heart and who they are of just wanting to push the team and the sex excuse me, success of the team. Um, both of them are very similar in that regard and just fired up that excitement, that that passion and just that love of rowing and that love of competing. Um, I really do think this kind of in terms of how they related to the team and how they challenged themselves were very, very similar in that way. And, and over the years, I think that We've had a lot of talented athletes, but those two, I think why they stand out kind of more so than others is because the team around them has been fast, but it's because they have enabled the team around them to be fast. They have challenged others and supported others and been really ultimate team players, which has led to a solid year in 07, our first year at NCAAs. Um, and then through Julie's tenure here um, has been a lot, very successful. I want to ask you about Amy Van Ryan, who... Her cousin was Ashley Van Ryan, was the starting center fielder for UCF on the 2008 Conference USA Championship team, was also part of the A-Sun Championship team in 05. So you got a family tree here of UCF bloodlines here <laughs> with Amy. Uh, describe Amy and, and her story and how you ended up getting her. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things that I, I love about the sport, and it's kind of actually the opposite end of the spectrum from Julie, is Julie has been, um, you know, since she was 10, but we recruit out of sport and, and we're always looking for talented, competitive athletes. Like we can teach you to row. That's the easy part. And, you know, that was sort of the way Christina Sarf came into it. But with Amy, we had reached out and we had recruited her. Um, and initially she, you know, was didn't know what this rowing thing was. Um, but then she chose and she came here and she... I mean, arguably one of the most competitive people and she will race anything, anytime, anywhere, anything that moves and is always looking for that win. And it just has such a great energy in her freshman year. She was excited to learn and it was something new and just wanted to win championships and be the best and be out in front. And she figured out the sport pretty quickly. She's just, she's an athletic, as you know, like just in her family's in her blood and her freshman year, was um actually that was the, the last 
full season we had. And so her freshman year, she was in the four. And that is the highest, um, I believe it's the highest placing we've had a boat ever at NCAAs. And in that boat, we had Amy, who was a freshman. We had another um, freshman from Italy. And then we had an upperclassman and another out of sport who had been a swimmer. And they just, honestly, they, they didn't know any better other than to race anything that moved. And why can't we be top 15 in the country? And they went out and Amy was a, a real big part of that. And it has continued. Right now she's seven seat of our varsity eight. And she just is always amped to race. She just has, she's such a competitor at all times. It's really remarkable because obviously uh, Ashley has gone on and has been part of the U.S. national handball team. So these two like just pick up sports as hobbies. I don't know what they do. Uh, I remember I know Ashley very well. I've not met Amy yet, but I know Ashley well. Very one of those people that has those intangibles in the leadership on the yep. softball side. Do you see that in Amy as well moving forward, that leadership and the intangibles that you have you have to have on a championship team? I do, I do, and I think that um, I mean, in, in in rowing, we we have larger teams, you know, and in the eight, we've got the coxswain. There's a lot of different roles, and so I think there's a lot of different kind of roles to fill with that leadership. And what Amy really, really brings is that confidence and that like, why not me? Why can't we win? Like with history or whatever, or it's just nothing's impossible. And it's if you go out and put your head down, and she is shown that that can be done. And when you are in a boat with Amy or you're near Amy, you sort of, she emanates this confidence and it just, it kind of infuses you and you start to be like, yeah, yeah. Why, why not? Like I, I can do this. And she just is, has fun going hard and it's really great to have that as a coach and really important. And that it's, you know, we've got our hard workers and we've got our kids who are going to do everything else, but we also need that somebody who's just, chomping at the bit to go and that is absolutely what she brings and infuses into others as well yeah yeah that sounds very familiar <laughs> it brings a lot of memories back there we're speaking with head coach becky kramer here on black and go banneret let's talk about obviously oak ridge that's where you're going to be for the american conference championships give me the what's it like over there you've been there before uh but just take me through that and the keys to being successful over in the, over there yeah, it's um, and I've been there uh, before. I've been there a lot. Um, kind of ironically, just the way our schedules have been over the last few years, very, very, very few people on the team have been there. And so this is going to be a new race course for a lot of the staff and um, a lot of the team. But it is a race course that has always been kind to us. Um, it is one of my favorites um, and is typically been one of the team's favorites. And in looking, kind of projecting out at the conditions, we haven't had ideal racing conditions in more than a couple of years. And so, um, I mean, again, in 2019, we had to move up racing by two days uh, because of conditions. And so it's predicted to be glass. It's, um, you know, we've got good seeds. We're in a center lane. And it really is just a protected place where we get the opportunity to just race without having to really think and kind of worry about specifics of the race course, if that makes sense. It'll be easy to imagine ourselves at home. Um, it's going to be the right temperature. Um, it's you know, a little bit of a tail current. So again, it's, it's a race course that has treated us well. Um, even though a lot of kids haven't been there, I think that it's going to, it's going to be good. 
Do you get a sense uh, of pride in that, you know, this week, a lot of casual fans, a lot of casual UCF fans, maybe don't pay attention, you know, during the early part of the season. This is the circle now. This is, hey, this is the rowing championships. We will usually win this. And a lot of people circle this and they're going to circle the NCAA championships. Uh, There's got to be some pride in that, that a lot of people now kind of look forward to this. This is one of their favorite events. They kind of circle. I'll never forget being in Tulsa. Uh, with softball in 2016 and running into people and people are watching the rowing championships as you were winning it from afar. I mean, what's it like to have that pride that, you know, a lot of people are going to be tuned in this week and, you know, and, and seeing how y'all do. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, um, it's awesome. And it's, you know, as sort of the season and the year begins to wind down with a lot of other sports, we really kind of wind up. Um, and it's that opportunity to be on the bigger stage and to get to sort of show off what we do and our hard work and in our sport. I mean, as a training sport, it's sort of what you do last is is what matters. And so everything we do is to prepare us for this day. And so to have that be a day that is highlighted, that people, that's what they tune in for. Like this is our chance to to show what we can do. Um, and so it's, it's really cool to be able to have that sort of come together and coincide that um, as we're peaking, finding our top speed, getting ready to go out um, and, and win some races right when everyone is excited and, and ready to watch us. I've always been curious of uh, the NCAA championships this year is in Sarasota, right in your backyard here, uh, basically hosting. Do you bring that up at all to the team? Is that something you don't bring up? Is that something you use as motivation? Uh, what, you know, being in Sarasota, it's not like that happens every year. Just, is that something that gets brought up? Um, yes and no. Um, I think it depends on the year and it depends on the team. And as we read the team, um, because sometimes we, we need that motivation. Um, not really necessarily need the motivation, but it just reminds us that it's, it's our home state. It's defending our turf. It's, this is our world. This is your friends and family can drive and be there. Um, but sometimes that's even just getting too ahead of ourselves. And we've just got to take care of the day, the stroke that we're on. And so having been at NCAAs and in Sarasota a couple of years ago, it, I think we talked about it a little bit more um, this year. We remind them every once in a while that, you know, we're Florida and when it gets hot, like this is, we're excited like this. We know this, there's teams that get here and kind of melt. Um, And so we just get excited that this is, we get to perform in this environment in our state, but we really, again, with just the differences in this year and everything, it's been much more about the execution of what's directly in front of us. Um, and it's, it's a young enough team that, again, we're so far removed from even having been at an NCAA championship. So it's tough to talk about what it's like to be there when a lot of our kids have never seen boats go that fast or those teams. And so it doesn't mean as much to them. And so we just focus on creating the speed we've got. So it's kind of a bit of both, if that makes sense. Is that what drives you as a coach is getting these new faces and, and kind of le- helping them lead them to success. Is that kind of what drives you here and keep maintaining this level, high level, but at the same time, getting these new faces and have them experience what previous athletes and rowers have done before. Is this maintaining that? Is that part of that joy you have in coaching? That is, that's, um, that's what I love about coaching is, is being able to teach, I mean, teach the sport um, and challenge our athletes to do more than they think they can. And in so many different ways, whether it's on the water or in the classroom, you know, we've got someone like Julie 
who had never swept before she came here. She'd only rode with two oars. And since she was here, she, you know, now rose with one oars. And then even after her first year, went back to her home country and had some of the highest finishes that Denmark had had at the world championships and to push her beyond what she had thought. But then someone like Amy or, you know, the new out of sport kids, they come in and they know nothing about the sport, but I, we get a whole year to work on and build and learn and challenge. And they had no idea even what an oar was. And nine, 10 months later are, you know, racing for a national title. And so just the idea of stretching what they believe is possible, both in general, but also about themselves. And I, I love that as a coach. Last question. What's going to be the keys to being successful this week up in Tennessee there and accomplish your goals? Um, I think the keys to being successful, it's um, SMU has had a, a very successful spring. Um, they're currently ranked number 11 in the country. And so it's really going out. And as I've said, we've been picking up speed um, since our last race over the last three weeks. And, and normally when you've got this much of a quiet period, you can kind of go flat, but it's been the opposite for us. And so it's really focusing on us and what we're doing and the speed that we can create and not allowing other crews to kind of intimidate us or get into our heads or like, we, we know what we're putting down. We need to be confident in that and just execute what we've been doing and just take it one stroke at a time. And I, if we do that and which I know we can, we'll be, we'll have a successful weekend. I'm glad you mentioned SMU and people may not realize of the strong, how strong this league is. Uh, you mentioned it. 19 was very close. I mean, that was just put you were pushed uh, there. And and then obviously it's going to be nationally televised be on ESPN plus, which also you got to be excited about with the exposure yeah. you're going to be getting. No, very, very excited about that. But yeah, since we've, um, you know, the American and since we've joined, it's been getting faster and faster each year. And it's exciting because we are getting faster and faster each year, but it has gotten to a level where, yeah, number 11 team in the country is trying to knock us off our pedestal um but we're looking to defend and if we just do what we need to do i think we'll be in a good position but it's, it's definitely going to be some fast fast quality racing well coach we wish you good luck over there uh this week and uh obviously appreciate you taking time from a busy schedule for joining us uh, good luck and uh, we'll talk soon all right thank you very much thank you and thanks again to head coach becky kramer for joining us here on the podcast thanks to megan herboff for set, helping set that up and uh, certainly we look forward to watching UCF rowing, see if they can get back on top here and winning another American Conference Championship. Should be fascinating uh, this weekend as it'll take place on Sunday, 10 a.m. Eastern from e on ESPN Plus from Oak Ridge, Tennessee on Sunday. So big Sunday with rowing competing in the Conference Championship. Also women's tennis in the Sweet 16 at 7 o'clock at night. And then the selection show on ESPN2 at 9 o'clock for softball. We will know then where UCF softball will play in the NCAA tournament the following weekend. So big Sunday night for UCF athletics with, again, rowing competing for the conference championship in the American Athletic as well as women's tennis in the Sweet 16 and then softball in the selection show that night. And, of course, baseball will be in Tulane wrapping up the series that day. And when we come back, we'll talk some UCF baseball with our very own Bryson Turner. What is What happened to the Knights against Wichita State? And should instant replay 
be a part of college baseball. We'll discuss all that and much more as we return. You're listening to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And welcome back here to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Eric Lopez here with you. And joining us now, making his debut on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, covering the baseball beat for us, among other things. And that's, of course, Bryson Turner joining us here on the Better. Welcome, mate. Welcome to your debut. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. Nothing like talking UCF baseball losing a series for your debut, but that's unfortunately what we're here to talk about. Uh, the Knights lose three out of four to Wichita State after winning the first game of the series. Obviously, Greg Lovelady very frustrated afterwards. He got ejected in Sunday's game, which we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, but first of all, let's talk about this series against Wichita State. Look optimistic like a positive start winning that first game of the series in the, on Friday. And you're thinking, hey, things are going in the right direction with this team with the recent play. But uh, unfortunately, that would not be the case for them as Wichita State just kind of batted around uh, against UCF pitching the whole weekend, winning the second game of that doubleheader 11-1 to after losing after UCF won the first game 6-3. to And then Wichita State won on Saturday. 10 to 3 and then 7 to 6 on Sunday. What went wrong for UCF against Wichita State, Bryson? I would say it was the starting pitching. I think that if you had to identify the main root cause, it would be the starting pitching. Greg Lovelace said himself in the series ending press conference that the starting pitchers gave up 20 of of the 31 runs that Wichita State scored during that series. Now, this isn't to say that all the starting pitching was bad. Hunter, pa- obviously, in Game One, Hunter Patterson did a great job in his return to the mound. With in the mound, but unfortunately, with Surwa, Sinclair, and Jones, they just weren't able to keep the Wichita State offense at bay. Which, when you have an a, a lineup that has five of the top twenty batting averages in the conference. It's going to be tough, and unfortunately, the starting pitching just couldn't do it this time. You mentioned Hunter Patterson. That was the positive of the weekend. Back in the rotation, pitched very well. What was your reaction to him pitching well? And, you know, look, they're trying to replace Colton Gordon, which is not easy. He's out for the year for Tommy John. So they decided to go to Patterson on Friday. Were you surprised by the move? What was your thoughts on him? Well, Obvious, well, obviously, you know, I came in midseason, of course, with Murph having his departure with MLB.com. Congratulations to him, by the way. But so when I came in, of course, I knew Hunter Patterson as mainly a bullpen arm. So this is the first time that I have seen him on the mound, and he did an amazing job. I looked at his stats from, the pre- from earlier in the season, and he got nine strikeouts today, which is the most strikeouts he's had in one game all season long. So considering that this is his first time starting since back in March, this was an amazing return for Hunter Patterson. So I would, so I was very, very glad to see that Patterson was able to step up the way he did, especially since Gordon is out. Like you said, Greg Lovelady said in a post game press in a post game press conference that Patterson was actually the, the next best arm they have after Colton. High praise. And he's right. He was a high draft pick. You know, he pitched so well in 2020, got off to a slow start this year in the rotation, got moved to the bullpen. Now we'll see if he could finish strong. But unfortunately for him, other than him, nobody else pitched very well. And uh, Greg Lovelady didn't really sh- uh, shorten. You know, he was well, not sugarcoating it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was not happy with his starting rotation, was yeah, he? he was not. It, it's, uh, he was not. One of the bi- honestly, the, the way that he framed it, 
is that he was very frustrated that the starting pitchers were not performing and that causes them to overstress their bullpen because I do want to give credit where credit is due to the to the Knights bullpen because they man they have managed to stop the stop the bleeding in most scenarios. Ben Vespi had a great showing this series. He went four innings in one game. I believe it was game four. Yes, it was game four where he only he pitched four innings and only allowed one hit. So there was plenty of great relief performances from the Knights, but it's the starting pitching that gave up, like I said, 20 out of the 31 runs scored were given up by starting pitchers. So that's really how Lovelady was framing it there. Glad you mentioned the Sunday game. That's where some controversy took place. There was a call at first base, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Bryson, because you watched it live as you're watching the game. I watched the replay of it uh, archived later. There was a call at first base that went for Wichita State. Greg Lovelady disagreed. He argued about it. It was a huge call in the game because it opened up the inning for Wichita State. They scored, I think, three runs after that. It took the lead. He got tossed. First, before we get into what he said afterwards about that, describe the play that Greg was upset about that eventually ended up getting him tossed because he did not stop talking to the umpire uh, in that inning. Just describe what what happened. Yes, so he actually did argued the call twice, which I think is what got him ejected. But basically the initial play, Zach, uh, Wichita State second baseman Jack Siggers was at the bat, and he managed to hit a, a softly hit bouncing ball to the, pitch, to, to the pitcher's mound, and it was a throw to first base. So it was a bang-bang play, and the umpire called, called, called the play out saying that Ben McCabe's foot was off the bag. However, when Mark Daniels and the ESPN Plus broadcast team went back and looked at their replay, Mark Daniels said himself that he was, it, it wasn't exactly clear to him if McCabe's foot was off the, was off the bag. But unfortunately, because UCF's John Leonardo Park, it does not have the instant replay capabilities, the, what the umpire says goes. And of course, Greg Lovelady was, fine, was unsatisfied with that call. And he spoke, had a discussion about it at length with first baseman umpire Jim Strauss. So they argued about it for a little bit, and then the game continued for a little bit. And then when the pitching change happened, this was, back, this was when they, they were switching from A.J. Jones to Ben Vespi. When that, or during that exchange, the love lady would come out and argue the call again with home plate umpire Will Thornwell, and then that's what got him ejected. <laughs> and so... He kind of addressed it was it was very interesting how he addressed that in the post game. He's obviously frustrated. They've lost three out of four. Uh, let's be real. I think for this team now, if they have any chance in the NCAA tournament, they got to win the conference tournament in Clearwater. Uh, you know, it's not going to get easy as we as we'll talk later. But instant replay, I thought was fascinating, Bryce. And you and I were thinking the same thing. I had no idea, as we find out in the post game, that. It's a school-by-school school situation as far as instant replay when it comes to college baseball in the American. Like, some schools have it, some don't, based on their facilities. He was asked about instant replay, and if I'm not mistaken, he said, ask the administration, right? <laughs> that was, yes, sir, uh, he did. What was your... 
What was kind of the vibe in that post game on Sunday? You were there. I think Bray, our friend Brandon Helwig asked that question from UCFSports.com. I had no idea about the replay being that selective. I'm pro replay. It's funny that that comes up on Sunday. Okay, I'll share this story with you. Two nights earlier, I'm calling UCF softball against South Florida. It's the bottom of the six. South Florida's up 2-0. UCF has bases loaded uh, and two outs. Denali Schapacher at the plate. She hits a bullet to third base. It's clearly off the glove of the third baseman who's in fair territory. Clearly. Off her glove, past her, two-run score, tie the game. The umpire, home plate umpire, calls it a foul ball. Coach Ball Malone argues. He said afterward, they said afterwards that he said that he, he did not see the ball touch the glove. Doesn't get together with the umpires. The call stands. USF wins. Coach Ball Malone, let's just say, in the postgame said she's in favor of instant replay. I found it funny that maybe amusing maybe is the better word, that 48 hours later this topic comes up, and I kind of agree with Greg. They got hosed, I thought, in that call. Could have cost them the game. I mean, it was a long game. But I'm for replay. But I had no idea, Bryson, that this was a administrative decision from the standpoint of facilities where – it's kind of selective, which I don't like. I think either everybody should have it or nobody should have it. The fact that some do and some don't, to me, is a little uh, quirky. What's your opinion on that? You really hit the nail right on the head, Eric. I mean, I was like you, I was also very shocked when Mark Daniels brought it up in the ESPN Plus broadcast and Greg Lovelady in the post-game press conference that this was a school-by-school -school decision. And to me, this is the type of thing that you think should be, you know – a equalized all over the conference. It's that if you have one conference, then all of them should abide by, you know, similar rules, especially when it comes to instant replay. It's like with, it's like with lights, you know, it's every, either every stadium should have the capability to have lights or none of them should. And none of, none of them should. So yeah, you're pretty, you pretty much hit the nail right on the head. And I don't know what I, – I, I get the issue might be that you may have to have an extra camera and it does cost money. You have to have somebody run the replay. But look, with the way technology is, and you would know this because you watch every UCF sporting event on ESPN+, Plus. the technology is there to where you could have replay, right? Like from what your vantage point, the juice watching the telecast, there's no reason why they can't have replay or show replay. I think there should be replay in baseball and softball. I think everybody should have it. It should be a conference decision. The SEC, I believe, has it uh, for baseball. Other, other leagues don't. I think they should be unified. I'm not saying you need to re show replay of every call. You can maybe pick and choose what calls to, re to review and not. But I do think both baseball and softball should have instant replay because the game is so fast. And for the umpires, I just honestly – you know, baseball, I actually think baseball umpires are pretty good. Softball is atrocious. They're they're an embarrassment, but that's a whole other story. Um, I think the game is so fast that the umpires do need help. And sometimes, I don't know if it's ego or not, they don't ask for help or whatever, but it just helps. And everybody wants to get the right call on that. But I was shocked that this was a selective group uh, deal there. And it'll be interesting to see. I don't know, and this is something we'll probably have to push and discuss with Coach Lovelady down the road is is this something that will be brought up by the coaches again maybe in the offseason is this something that's being pushed internally uh how do we make what's the issue what do we make it how, how do we make it happen uh for it to uh, to come to new uh you know to make it happen i guess yeah pretty much i for me the big thing with instant replay is that, that i think that is the most important thing 
is that it provides people with a second chance to look at something. I mean, looking at the looking at the play that really caused this whole debacle, it was a bang bang play. You know, it was very hard to see exactly which exactly which way the call went. But because there was at least that tiny hint of doubt placed in there that it could have gone the other way, that's the way, why you really need replay is to make sure that you got the right call. And sure, maybe the call doesn't change. Maybe there isn't enough, you know, indisputable video evidence to do that. But at least you checked. And that is really the, I think, the big thing that people should really push when they advocate for instant replay. The drawback, I guess some would say, is sometimes, and we've seen this in Major League Baseball, it takes forever for the replay to be reviewed, um, slows the pace of the game down. Some would suggest that coaches may use replay as a way to manipulate it to get a, quote, timeout, maybe get a bullpen up, warm them up a few extra minutes. But that's whatever, right? I mean, that to me, that's small potatoes compared to the big picture, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I would agree. And I think there are certain ways that you might be able to get around this. I know that football, of course, has the replay, has the replay official. And so you could have something similar to that where the replay official could, could be part of the equation where they do a call. So that way it's out of the coach's hands. And then that way you can maybe have the coaches, you know, petition a call once or twice a game or something like that. So there are definitely ways where instant replay can be advocated and, and where it shouldn't slow the pace of the game too much all right at the end of the day they lost the game seven six they lose the series where do they go from here now bryson it's not going to get easier this weekend when they go on the road at tulane is it no it is not first of all they actually fell they actually fell behind in the conference they started out the series third in the conference behind east carolina and tulane but now they've actually fallen back into a tie for fourth place with Cincinnati they're both 13 and 11 Wichita State comes out of the series with a 13 and 10 conference record this is conference record I probably should mention that earlier but now they're going to be going up against the Tulane team that is has a 14 and 5 conference record and also has two of the top six lowest ERA starting pitchers in the league with Olthoff and Hoffman so going into this especially with UCF's dependence on the long ball because a lot of their runs this this series came off of the long ball so going up against a team like Tulane with though with that kind of power and on the road too this is definitely going to be a test for a test for the team going in going on the road one last time if you look at bracketology and some of the projections Tulane is kind of right now that second team to make maybe be in position to make the NCAA tournament for the league right now the league's projected as a two-bid league uh, Tulane's kind of been up and down, 25 and 17. They're coming off that big series against East Carolina that they lost three out of four up in Greenville against the Pirates. Uh, so this is a big series for Tulane because they're trying to push as well for a, maybe getting positioned to be an at-large team. Offensively, they hit 279 as a team, 30 homers. Uh, not the jugular of an offensive team, although Bennett Lee seems to be their starting player, 453 average. For him, three homers, 26 RBIs. Colin Burns, 344, five homers, 27 RBIs. Chase Engelhard, 291, six homers, 34 RBIs. Kind of leads away. But you mentioned their pitching staff. Brandon Olhoff and Tyler Hoffman, maybe two of the top yes, pitchers in the league, right? 
two of the top pitchers in the conference. Yes, looking at conference, looking at conference statistics, they are listed as two of the top six of lowest ERAs that are. I believe the the qualifying statistic is they have to have pitched more than forty innings this season. Yep. So out of those ty- types of pitchers in the conference, Wolfhoff and Hoffman are two of the top six. What was your thoughts on UCF's offensively performance and now moving forward? Because they're going to face probably this, I mean, Tulane and East Carolina right now, you could argue maybe have the two best pitching staffs. UCF had success against ECU. Uh, will, you know, your thoughts on them and trying to have success against Tulane from what you've seen from the offense? Well, what I've really noticed is that the, as far as the offense, they are, they have, they're very dependent on the long ball. One thing I've, noticed is how we weren't really able to gain ground on Wichita State unless we were able to hit homers. And that dependence is very, it's not foolproof. Obviously, it's good because we we can be able to make up a larger deficit quickly. But, you know, the one of the reasons why Wichita State was able to to flat out you know, kill us on the offensive perspective is they were able to get those runs that didn't just come from the long ball. So I think going forward for UCF, not only, not just with after with the rest of this season, but beyond, because this is a very young team on average that they need to be able to get make to not exactly go away with the long ball, but they do need to be able to score runs without having to just knock them out of the park every time. To back up your point, 57 home runs in 48 games. They're led by Jordan Rathbone, 11 homers, 303 average, 40 RBIs. Ben McCabe, 11 homers, 49 RBIs, 264 average. Uh, Josh Crouch, 301, 9 homers, 25 RBIs. Alex Freeland, 284, 5 homers, 27 RBIs. Tom Jostin, who's had some big homers this season, 6 homers, 28 RBIs, 257 average on the year. Jeffrey Pena leads in more of the speed game. They do have 77 steals as a team, so they still run a lot. Uh, but who has impressed you watching now them for a few weeks? Who's impressed you the most offensively? I would say it would be it would be Jordan Rathbone and Ben McKay and Ben McKay. They have managed to make a lot of offensive high offensive highlights this season. One 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 for instance is Ben McKay managed to hit his first triple of the season in game one that helped the UCF come back from an early deficit in that game. And of course, Rathbone has been, has managed to really kill in the home run game to get him to tie Ben McCabe for the team's home run leader. So as far as offense goes, I'm really, I'm mainly impressed with, with those two, but like you said, you know, Pena, Pena's speed game, John Montez had a walk-off home run, walk-off home run last series. So offensively they certain there certainly are there but like i said this is a very young team and i think that the, and i think that that youth is really what's going to define this season because with so many young players there's a rawness to them where you can see their highest potential in the case of early in the season with Ole Miss and East Carolina who are nationally ranked and we managed to hang in there with them and get wins but yet we've been in the past two weeks, we've been run ruled by Memphis and Wichita State. That's not to say that they're that Memphis and Wichita State aren't great teams, but that it kind of shows that there is a, a vast spectrum of performance for this team. Either we can be on the top of our game or we're not. And so what I what I think 
I would love to see from the team, not just for the rest of this season, but moving forward, because we have a lot of freshmen, sophomores on this team, is to see them be able to hone themselves so that way they will be able to more often than not be on that uh, that side of the spectrum where, like we saw them in Ole Miss against Ole Miss in East Carolina. UCF 23 and 25 will be at Tulane doubleheader Friday starting at 3 Eastern. It'll be all on ESPN Plus, single game Saturday, 5 Eastern, and then Sunday at 1 o'clock from New Orleans, coverage on ESPN Plus. Tell the audience where they can find you and obviously your work. Yes, so my Twitter account is at It's Bryson Turner. The B and T are capitalized. And I do ha- and I do have a Facebook page that's just Bryson Turner. I mainly I mainly do my live tweeting through my Twitter. So if I would recommend anyone following to follow my work, it would be through there. But uh, yeah, I'll be covering softball in Tulsa this week. Conference tournament going on. Obviously, tennis, as we talked about, obviously earlier, of course, rowing in the American Conference Championship. We had Becky Kramer on the show earlier. Thanks to her for joining us. Thanks to Andrew Glukoff for joining us. And thank you, Bryson. As I mentioned, good debut by you, sir. Thank you very much, Eric. Like I said at the top of the segment, I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited to work with you guys and see where my UCS sports journey is going to take me. Until then, for Bryson, for Angel, for Jeff, uh, I'm Eric Lopez. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Black and Gold Bannerhead Podcast. Make sure you check us out on all your devices, and make sure you subscribe to our podcast, subscribe to our YouTube page, Follow us at the Twitter and, of course, blackandgoldbanneret.com. Have a great week. Until next time, this has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast.